Good morning, Grace. If you have your Bible, please turn, please turn with me to John chapter 20. And that was a beautiful uh, sung worship set. I know we say this sort of thing from time to time, but if you're paying attention, then your heart should be engaged. And, and I hope you know that too, that one of the huge things that happens in sung worship, when we gather the way that we're doing right now and we sing praises to the Lord and we pray the prayers that we pray, one of the things that happens is we uniquely engage our hearts and prepare our hearts to be able to receive the word and ultimately to encounter God. And that seems particularly important to me this morning because I think really what we've been doing the past weeks and studying John 20 and 21 is think about this idea of encountering, encountering God. John 20 and 21 is concerned with encountering God. Uh, do we encounter God? Well, yes, because Jesus is risen. What sort of Jesus do we encounter? Well, not, not a disembodied spirit, but no, a glorified Jesus with a glorified body. And today, as we consider our passage, we're going to think about this idea of how do we encounter God? In particular, how do we encounter the resurrected Jesus? Everything we want to consider today is going to circle around this question. How do we encounter the resurrected Jesus, what does it look like this side of Easter in our world here in La Mirada, California to encounter Jesus? We're going to see three things from John 20 this morning, three points. First, we encounter Jesus according to his particular kindness. And the key word there is particular. Second, we encounter Jesus by looking to him where he is found. And then finally, when we encounter Jesus, we believe in his name. So that's what we're going to be seeking to see from John 20. If you would, let's read together. Follow along with me. John 20, starting in verse 24, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter. John 20, 24. Now Thomas... One of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. But believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather together in the name of Jesus and we can encounter you today. So Father, I pray that you would bless us and be gracious. Uh, Cause your spirit to, cause your word to come alive in us. Uh, Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, again, from John 20, 24 through 31, I wanna see three things. First, we encounter Jesus according to his particular kindness. Here, we just read the story of Thomas. This passage begins by giving us an introduction to the narrative, to the story. Thomas wasn't with the other disciples in the previous story, in what we studied last week, you might remember. Thomas wasn't there. That's what is going to drive the action of the story today. We don't know what was going on with Thomas. Uh, This passage doesn't tell us. We don't know if he was off shopping for bread, if he, in his grief, uh, did not gather with the other disciples. We don't know if he was visiting someone. It's just not given to us. And so what we do know is, is that Thomas was not there. And this introduces the conflict of the passage as well. Because Thomas wasn't with the disciples, He didn't see Jesus. When Jesus appeared, he said, peace be with you. And he appeared face to face before the disciples. Thomas wasn't there. And so Thomas did not have this experience. So Thomas did not see Jesus face to face. And as a result, Thomas is actually a lot like us. And so, What happens? What happens when the disciples tell Thomas about Jesus' resurrection? He disbelieves. Says, I cannot believe that. I will never believe that. The only way I will believe that is if Jesus himself appears before me and I am able to go and physically touch him and touch where he was wounded, touch his hands, put my hand in his side. It's the only way. In other words, I'm not going to believe. And it's for this reason that Thomas gets the unfortunate nickname of Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Oh, you're just being a Doubting Thomas, meaning you're being a cold skeptic. You don't wrestle uh, or you don't deal with make-believe, but you deal with the cold hard facts. And so you sit back and you, and you consider the facts before you would actually decide if you're going to agree or believe or something. Um, major dictionaries have doubting Thomas in them as someone who does not easily believe a thing. And I have to admit, I really dislike this nickname, Doubting Thomas. It makes it seem like Thomas is some sort of cold, hard skeptic. And I think that we like that because it allows us to feel okay in our skepticism. We make Thomas be like us in an inappropriate way, I believe. Think about Thomas for a second. 
Thomas shows up in two major ways in the book of John. In one of those times, he demonstrates remarkable faith. John chapter 11, Lazarus dies. And Jesus says to his disciples, let us go to him. His disciples interpret that as let us go and die with like Lazarus has. We're going to our death. And so that would be a concerning thing for Jesus to say, right? How does Thomas, doubting Thomas, skeptic Thomas, no faith Thomas respond to Jesus? Let us also go that we may die with him. Is that, are those the words of a doubting man? This seems to me to be full of faith, Thomas. This seems to me to be a Thomas who believes in Jesus, hopes in Jesus, who takes him at his word. No, I don't think we see a man of weak faith in Thomas. That is not the totality of who he is. I don't think we see a skeptic coldly dealing with just the facts. Instead, I think we see a person who is crushed, who is ridden with grief, who is overwhelmed because his master was crucified. And now he wonders at the implications of his master's death. The way D.A. Carson puts it is that when Jesus died on the cross, Thomas likely thought that he had misplaced his trust in Christ. He was at least tempted to believe that. Jesus had done all this great stuff. He'd done these signs. He'd done these miracles. And he said, I'm going to usher in the kingdom. And Thomas and the disciples, they had had all these thoughts about what Jesus was going to do. And here Jesus dies. And so does that invalidate all of those things that Jesus said and did? What does that say about my faith that Jesus died? I think that's the sort of doubt that we're seeing here in Thomas. And who amongst us hasn't experienced something like this? Who amongst us hasn't had a mentor or a trusted leader let us down or fall or betray us? This sort of thing can uniquely rock a person's foundation. And I think that's the kind of thing that we're seeing here with Thomas. And so what happens? The resolution of the story begins a week later. The disciples along with Thomas, have gathered. They have assembled. Interestingly enough, this is a week after Easter Sunday, a week after the disciples gathered and Jesus appeared to them. And some would say this is actually the beginning of Sunday worship. This is the beginning of the people of God gathering on the Lord's day to set apart a time to worship God. So the people of God, they assemble They've come together. And what happens as the people of God assemble, as they gather, Jesus uniquely shows up in the midst of their assembly. Again, not the major point, but that is an interesting thing to me to notice. But let's not uh, get focused too much there. Jesus' attention when he appears uh, doesn't seem to be on the ten. He appears and says, peace be with you. But what happens? He immediately shifts his focus, shifts his attention on one, on Thomas. Not on the ten, on Thomas. It's particular. Thomas. 
put your finger here, touch my hands. Thomas, put your hand out and put it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Here's the point. People who have studied and written on this passage seem to be in agreement that when Jesus says this to Thomas, he is rebuking him. But he's rebuking him in the gentlest and mildest and most tender way. Make no mistake, Thomas' faith is weak here. He does seem to be shaken. He is doubting. It's not the sort of doubt that I think is often associated with Thomas, but it's unbelief. Nevertheless, Thomas should know better. He has been with Jesus. He has seen the various signs that appear in the book of John. He has seen the miracles. He has sat under the teaching of Jesus. He's heard that Jesus would lay his life down and take it up again. And yet, nevertheless, he disbelieves. And so this disbelief is an affront to God. It's sin. What does Jesus do with this disbelief? See, shake Thomas off. See, grab him by the shoulders to scold him. Does he chastise Thomas and say, this is what weak faith looks like, other disciples? No. No, he focuses his attention on him. He orients himself towards him. And he meets him exactly where he is in the midst of his disbelief. He says, see my hands. See my side. Touch my hands. Touch my side. He deals tenderly with him. See me. Touch me and believe in my name. Particular grace is showered upon Thomas here. Christ expresses a particular kindness towards Thomas. This is Jesus, the good shepherd, leaving the 99 to go after the one. This is Jesus fighting for his. This is Jesus saying, I will not lose my sheep. He is mine, he is part of my fold and I will pursue him. I will go after him. I will not lose him. And what's the end result? Thomas declares his belief. How does Jesus respond? The very first thing that Jesus does is acknowledge Thomas's belief. Verse 29 says, you have believed. Thomas is counted amongst the believers. His weak faith, his doubt, the quality of his faith did not delegitimize his place amongst the people of God. No, it was all about the content, the object of his faith, Jesus. This makes me think back to my first and I think really only interaction with a bully trying to pick on me when I was growing up. When I was in the ninth grade, uh, I had a group of friends and as we were wont to do, we went to the mall. My mom dropped us off at the mall and we would just walk around like no good youths. And so we went to the mall uh, one day and we started walking around and pretty quickly uh, we saw this big gathering of seniors from our high school sitting together. And uh, this would normally not be that big of a deal, but on this particular day, uh, an unfortunate thing happened. 
this one guy who I will call the bully stood up and along with a couple of other guys, he locked his gaze on us. And if you could think about like a typical 80s or 90s movie bully, then that is this guy. He, I, I, I really don't know how to put this in like a nice way, but he did not do well in school. Um, he was all about sports. He was big. He had a reputation for being mean, for being crass. He did pick on people. He got in fights. He was just like your, your stereotypical bully. And he was zeroing in on us. And so him and a couple of his, his henchmen uh, moved towards us. And sure enough, he starts to go at us and he starts to say mean things and kind of threaten us. And this was worrisome because I had friends who didn't respond well under that sort of pressure. And so I was wondering if things were going to combust at some point. And about the time that I thought things were going to get really bad, uh, this person appeared. And this person's name was Micah. Micah was another senior at my high school. And Micah showed up, and he was much bigger than the bully. Uh, I I don't know everything there is to know about the social politics of the senior class at my high school at that time, but I thought that he was one of the more popular people at my school. Um, Everybody knew who he was. And he showed up and very quickly said, knock it off, leave him alone. And boom, situation was done, absolutely done. And Bully and his henchmen, they go back and they sit down. And, And... I remember thinking that was an amazing thing for him to do. I mean, he stood up for vulnerable ninth graders when he didn't have to. No one would have thought bad of him if he didn't do that, but he did. And that was really great for him to do that. That was an honorable thing for him to do. Um, But the thing was, is uh, it, it wasn't just that he was standing up for vulnerable ninth graders. After this happened, He looked over at our group and he looked at me and said, are you okay, Jackson? I was like, he knows my name. (laughs) And I was like, this this cool senior guy knows my name? And I'm just amazed that he knew my name. And so the thing was, is I I got to know Micah later and, uh, and I think that he was the sort of person who would stand up for a group of ninth graders. He would stand up for those people who could not stand up for themselves. It's the kind of guy that he was. But in that particular moment, he wasn't standing up for a group of ninth graders. He wasn't standing up for a random group. No, he was standing up for me. Of course, Jesus loved all of his disciples. Of course, he was kind to all of the disciples, evidenced by last week's passage. Here, though, We're seeing Jesus' kindness directed particularly. Jesus loved Thomas. Jesus was kind to Thomas. And just as Jesus' particular kindness was directed to Thomas, it's directed to you. To you. Jesus' lavish grace is directed to you. Yes, You have to know this. Jesus loves his church. He loves his bride. He died for his bride. 
He has gathered a holy people to be his possession. He is building up the church one brick at a time. He died for us. And some of us have no problem believing this. We wholeheartedly believe that Jesus died for us, that Jesus died for the church. He died for all of y'all. But we can have such a difficult time believing that Jesus died for me that Jesus loves me. And here's where we have to reckon with this passage. Listen carefully. This story shows us that God's love in Christ is particular. God loves you. God loves you. For you, he died. For you, he lived. God's kindness and grace and love are particular. Of course, this is a message that some of us need to be hearing the exact opposite of. The scriptures make it abundant that we are a body, that we are in us, and our society very much emphasizes the individual, so it's good for us to focus on the collective we that Christ redeemed. But here this passage wants to speak to us as individuals. God loves you. Here's how Mickey Klink puts it. The gospel is the declaration that all the cosmological purposes of God and his grand love for the world through the person and work of Jesus Christ are ultimately applied to specific individuals. The good news is not only universal, but also particular. It is for Thomas and therefore also for the individual reader. So are you here this morning with a doubting faith, a weak faith? Have you been knocked off your axis because of a mentor or a trusted leader or because you live in a fallen world and experience jacked up stuff day by day? I can't help but consider the fact that today's Mother's Day and as Brianna so helpfully uh, led us to consider, it is a wonderful and joyous day for many and it is a grievous day for others. It's a day that many of us are approaching or gathering together uh, with sorrow in our heart over. Do you come today with a weak faith? Do you come today with a doubting faith, wondering at the character of God, wondering at the goodness of God, wondering how God thinks about you? Know this, God's steadfast loving kindness rests upon you in Christ. Know this, that when Jesus hung upon the cross, he certainly thought about us, but he thought about you. Jesus took your sins upon his shoulders and cast them as far as the east is from the west. God has redeemed you to himself. He loved you to death, and now he gives you life. And so now, We encounter God according to his particular kindness. And maybe better put, God encounters us according to his particular kindness. You have not been overlooked. You are not unseen. Your grief is weighed and measured. God sees you and he loves you. He has purchased you in Christ. And so the question again that we want to consider is how do we encounter God? Well, here we want to say, well, God encounters us particularly according to his kindness in Christ. But 
if you're thinking about this passage well, then you'll say, well, although Thomas is like us, he did get to see Jesus. Jesus encountered him particularly in the flesh, and that's not like us. And so the question arises, well, where do we encounter God in this particularly kind sort of way? And so our second point this morning, we encounter God by looking for him where he's found. We encounter God by looking for him where he's found. When Kevin DeYoung preached on this passage, he said that Thomas began a doubter and he became a sign. He became a sign that God still speaks. He became a sign that God still encounters, that God is still knowable and expressing himself to people like us. In order to see this, I think we need to go a little bit deeper into this passage. Again, what drives this whole story forward? An interaction between Thomas and the disciples, right? Remember, Thomas wasn't with the disciples when Jesus appeared in the previous story. And if you can remember back to last week, then you remember when Jesus appeared, he did something very particular for the disciples. He commissioned them. He sent them out. He breathed on them and and said, receive the Holy Spirit. To use Matthew's terminology, he commissioned them to go and make disciples. He sent them out to make disciples, declaring that Jesus is risen and he is Lord. And so here we see the disciples get their very first chance to go and function as disciple makers, do the work of ministry, And it seems like Jesus is giving them a softball. He's serving Thomas up on a silver platter. Hey, Thomas wasn't with you when I appeared, but he's seen all the same things that you've seen. And now you get to go and declare to him that I am alive. So go and do it. And so you have to imagine they're super excited and Thomas comes and he's like, what's going on? And they're like, he is risen. And they're waiting for him to say, he's risen indeed. And, (laughs) And he's like, No, no, he's not. He is not risen. I will not believe that. He is not alive. And so here in John 20, I think we see the first major failure of evangelism in the disciples. And I hope that encourages you that the disciples fell flat on their face here. In themselves, they did not have power to change a person's heart, even one of their very own, even a disciple. Not only does this serve as evidence for the reliability of scripture, why would John include a story of the disciples falling on their faces? That the only reason for that to happen is if John was just recording history here. Nevertheless, he records this story and as he does so, he he lays bare the, the nature and the purpose of this passage. How will we encounter God this side of Easter? How will we encounter God this side of Easter? You see, it's not just that Thomas doubted. I mean, I assume all of the disciples doubted, right? I mean, they were all grief-stricken. Thomas wasn't alone in his doubt. It's not just that he doubted, but in his doubt, Thomas did something. Thomas expressed disobedience. See, Thomas exists in this weird transition between, new, between old and new covenant, between sight in the flesh and sight according to faith. 
Formally, Thomas encountered Jesus face to face. That's what he wants more of. That's what he wants to take hold of. He wants to be able to hug Jesus. He wants to be able to fall at his feet. He wants a physical master and Lord to lead him. But how does Jesus say that he will be encountered upon his death and resurrection? Through his witnesses. So Jesus comes to Thomas and he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And what Jesus is saying here is, don't look for me where I am not. Trust in my chosen means of communicating my presence, of mediating my presence in my life. My witnesses. And see me in them. And this is why when Thomas responds in faith at the sight of Jesus, Jesus responds by saying, you have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not yet seen me and believed. This is like Jesus breaking the fourth wall here. Jesus, it's as if Jesus is talking to Thomas and he says, you have seen me because you've believed. And then he pauses and he looks up to all of us and says, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. Here Jesus is preaching a sermon to us. He's stepping out and saying, there's coming a time when my people will not see me face to face. They will not see me in flesh. They will not see my hands, my scarred hands or my scarred side. No, that there's coming a time, blessed are those who have not seen me and believed. Jesus is utilizing Thomas to preach to us in our chairs this morning. We will not see Jesus the same way the disciples saw him. And this should be obvious for us, right? We've gathered here week after week for how many years? And Jesus has never come in amongst us or appeared on this stage with his pierced hands or his pierced feet and said, here I am in the flesh. That's not an experience that we get right? Nevertheless, just because we don't see Jesus face to face today, that doesn't mean that we don't see Jesus. This is why John puts the purpose of the book on the heels of this encounter between Jesus and Thomas. What's the purpose of this book? Jesus did lots of other signs, but these signs Thomas becoming one of them, these things are recorded, these are written that you may believe in Jesus and have life in his name. Thomas becomes a sign that Jesus is alive and he is still making himself known to people like us. Of all the things that Jesus did, this story is recorded so that we can know in our heads and in our hearts that Jesus is still appearing, not in the flesh, but through testimony. So my family and I, we just moved to Brea, and it is wonderful. We moved from downtown Fullerton to Brea area, and we're having a great time. And one of the things about our new place in Brea is it has a backyard. Praise the Lord for backyards. Um, In this backyard, we noticed pretty quickly that uh, a family of birds has built a nest up on top of a speaker in our backyard. And so uh, after a little while, uh, we looked up in the nest and we realized that this bird had laid four eggs and they were sitting there nice and cozy in that nest. And so 
My son Henry has this routine. Um, Every day, he will wake up and he will go outside and he will check on a strawberry plant, a tomato plant, and then he will check on the eggs in the nest. This is his wash and rinse routine every single day. He loves doing this. And he'll go and he'll squirt the tomatoes, squirt the plants with water, make sure they're good. And then he checks on those eggs day after day after day. One day, we're sitting there in our living room, and all of a sudden, we start hearing a crazy amount of chirping. And we go outside, and we look in the nest, and sure enough, these, these eggs have hatched, and there's four little baby birds now in this nest. And it's just beautiful to see. I, I haven't had many experiences like that. And the mom's coming and feeding them, and it's just this incredible thing that we get to watch day by day. And Henry is so overwhelmed and so excited about this. He makes it his routine now to go check on the tomato plants and the strawberry plants and then go to check on the baby birds. But the thing is, is um, these baby birds grow up at like the most insane pace, apparently. After about a week, it seemed like, I think actually a week, they were basically full grown and ready to fly from the nest. I, I don't know if that makes sense to any of you, if you have understanding in the way that birds grow, and maybe you can help me to understand this at some point, but, but this has blown my mind. And so all of a sudden we start noticing that birds aren't in the nest. And one day my wife, Raylene, goes out and she's looking up at this nest and there's one bird in there. And we're thinking like, are they okay? Did like somebody take them or something? And this bird looks at my wife and then he just takes off and flies away. And we're like, oh my gosh, they're like actually flying and leaving the nest. And so that's great. I mean, that's, the way it works, right? That's what you want for these baby birds. But the thing is, is Henry is three and he doesn't understand how this works. And so still every day he wakes up and he goes out and he checks on his strawberry plant, he checks on his tomato plant, and then he checks on that bird's nest. He looks for those birds, but they're not there. Day after day and he goes and he gets disappointed. And he gets frustrated, he gets upset. But see, the thing is, is just because the birds aren't there doesn't mean they're not there. If he would just look up, then he would see this wonderful family of birds sitting on the power line, looking down at him, chirping, enjoying themselves. All he, have to do, all he has to do is look up. This is the idea of the passage, I think. Jesus appeared to his disciples, including Thomas, but then he ascends. We're gonna consider that soon. He's not here anymore. And so we won't see him in the same way the disciples did, and yet we're still called to see him. We don't look for him to reveal himself according to his old way of revealing himself. No, he's told us now how he will reveal himself through his witnesses, through his testimony. And the big million dollar question is, is, well, where is this testimony? It's contained in the scriptures. Where do we encounter Jesus according to John 20? We encounter him in his word. We see him in his word. We see him through the story of Thomas. We see him in the signs of the book of John. You have to know this, that John, the entire reason he wrote his gospel and included all of these signs, Jesus' beloved disciple testified to all the things that Jesus did so that we would believe and have life in Jesus' name. Many of us are like Henry. We look for Jesus in places that he is not. We look for him in the old places. 
We desperately want to see him. We desperately want to find purpose in him, to find direction in him, to find satisfaction in him, fulfillment in him. And so we look for him, we look for him, we look for him. And all the while, we miss him, not recognizing that he's given us the precious gift of his divine self-revelation in the scriptures. He's told us his plan. He's told us his purposes. He's told us how he will interact with us in his scriptures. We want to see Jesus now. And we can in the word. This reminds me of a beautiful eulogy song called Symbols and Signs, where Odd Thomas, a spoken word artist, a rapper, uh, rapped this verse. Are you the kind that's completely consumed by symbols and signs? If you are, that's fine, but don't you find it interesting how most of the time your self-interpreting seems to coincide with what's deep inside your heart's desires? Seems rather convenient, doesn't it? I'm not saying that God can't do it, not saying that God won't do it. That might very well be the case. I'm simply making an observation of how much weight you place on it what seems to be at stake and how much of your faith is actually banking on it and how much of your mysticism is mixed with your religious philosophic system. Sometimes what we believe to be true from our supernatural pursuits is actually a fluke, a series of events that's used to distract you from the truth, but I'll give you a sign that's obvious. One of the most supernatural acts is that God through his word has actually revealed everything pertaining to life and godliness. There's this idea that an individual is somehow more spiritual if he sees these signs and symbols and takes what's normally invisible and makes it simple. But I say the mark of a mature man is the one who reads God's word and understands and allows that to govern his decisions and his perspective plans. I hope you caught that one line. Thomas says one of the most supernatural acts is that God through his word has actually, actually revealed everything pertaining to life and godliness. This is the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture. We have everything that we need in the word. The word reveals what we need for life and godliness. Thomas here quotes from 2 Peter chapter 1. In, in the scriptures, we have Jesus' presence mediated to us by the powerful working of the spirit. And so the scriptures give us Jesus, allow us to encounter him, allow us to see him with new eyes. Do you want to encounter Jesus? Do you want to see Jesus? Do you want to experience him? Do you want to know him and enjoy him? Well, you can. You can see him. Look for him where he says he will be found. We can behold the glory of God in the face of Christ as revealed in the word. Gaze upon Jesus. So as we start to wrap up our time, we have to recognize that Thomas doesn't only tell us how we encounter Jesus, but what happens when we encounter Jesus. Look at the resolution of this passage, verse 27. I'll try to go quick. Jesus directs his attention to Thomas. Put your finger here in my hand. Put your finger here in my side. And Thomas is astounded. He meets Jesus and he's undone. We have no rec uh, recording that he actually touched Jesus. It seems as if it, all it took was for him to see him. 
And what happens? One of the most climactic moments of the entire Gospel of John, really one of the most climactic moments of the entire New Testament. Verse 28, Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Thomas sees the resurrected Jesus. He encounters the resurrected Jesus. And how does he respond? With a confession of faith, with a declaration of Jesus' identity and relationship. And who is Jesus? He is Lord and God. Thomas' declaration of Jesus' true identity, his messianic identity as the unique son of God serves as a bookend for the gospel of John. How did the gospel of John begin? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And in him was life, and his life was the light of man. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. You see, see, Thomas sees the resurrected Jesus. And what happens? He sees his glory. And he declares, my Lord and my God. He beholds him rightly. He recognizes the word made flesh. He beholds him and he honors him as Lord and God. But recognize this too. Thomas didn't say, the Lord, the God. He didn't acknowledge just a mere true thing about Jesus, as appropriate as that might be. No, he declares, my Lord, my God. Thomas personally expresses faith in Jesus. He personally submits himself to Jesus' lordship. He says, I am found in him. He is mine and I am his. And this changes everything about who Thomas is. When he sees the risen Jesus, it changes him as he's filled with faith. And we know the extent to which this changed Thomas. We know that there are churches in India that trace their lineage back to Thomas traveling there as their first missionary. We know that Thomas was martyred for his faith because he saw Jesus and it changed everything about who he was because his sight led to faith. To close our time, I want to draw your attention once again to Jesus' response to Jesus, to, uh, Jesus' response to Thomas. Verse 29, have you believed because you've seen me? I don't think this is so much a question as it is a statement. You saw and you believed, good. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me face to face and yet have believed. Blessed are they. Blessed. It's a huge word. Eternally happy is the one who has not seen and believed. The gift of eternal life to those who have not seen and believed. Salvation from first to last to those who have not seen and yet believed. This isn't saying blessed are those who suspend logic who believe in made up gods, who just want it to be true so they believe it. This isn't saying blessed are those who believe in the flying spaghetti monster. No, this is saying blessed are those who encounter me according to my particular kindness. Blessed are those who receive the true testimony about me recorded in the scripture. Blessed are those who see me in faith and say, my Lord and my God. So the question for you today is, 
how do you respond to Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Is he the Lord and the God? A Lord, a God? Or is he my Lord, my God? Have you found yourself in Jesus? Are you his? Is he yours? If you can't say that, if you search your heart and you say, I cannot say my Lord and my God, please do not leave this place without talking to me, without talking to an elder, without talking to somebody with a green lanyard or a friend or someone who brought you. We want you to know what it means to submit to Jesus as Lord and God, to believe in his name. And for some of you, if you consider your own life and you consider your heart and you say, yes, who is Jesus to me? He is my Lord and my God. I have seen him. I've beheld his glory. He is my all in all. Then I urge you, see Jesus today as we consider the scriptures. See Jesus in the pages of scripture as you study the word this week. As you gather with your friends, as you talk with your family, as you talk with your grace group, see Jesus again and again and again and let, and let that produce faith in you. Let that buoy you. Let that cause you to stand upon the rock solid foundation of Christ. Let that be wind in your wings, wind in your sail, and cause you to go and live for him with every ounce of your being this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for your divine self-revelation where we can know Jesus according to your revealing him in your word. Father, I pray now that you would give us uh, incredible grace uh, to experience Jesus and to see Jesus and to be utterly changed. Help us to recognize your particular kindness towards us and cause us to love you and adore you this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.